Welcome to Left Foot. We invite fresh conversation on business development. Now here's your host, Nicole Giantonio. Hello, listeners. It's Nicole Giantonio, the founder of Left Foot, and I'm here to announce that our 12 audio-based business development challenges are now available. 12 practical, execution-oriented steps to predictable success. Part of the Left Foot GPS growth practice solutions for business development. Go to leftfoot.com GPS for details. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Left Foot. Today's guest has represented companies and individuals in criminal and civil False Claims Act whistleblower investigations and litigation. He's represented life sciences companies, healthcare providers, payers, and government contractors. He draws on these experiences to strengthen his clients' compliance and risk management programs. Co-managing partner of the Washington, D.C. office and a partner in the Shepard Mullins Investigations and International Trade Practice Group. David Douglas, welcome to Left Foot. David, it's great to have you as a guest on our program. Let's jump right into our questions. Which of your personal strengths or habits have allowed you to be successful in developing business? What I'd say is it's kind of three things. First of all, I'm kind of unabashed. I'll talk to anybody about anything. And when I was sort of first trying to build a practice and get out there, I'd go to a lot of receptions and I'm the person in the room who maybe, you know, I didn't know anybody when I got there, but I would just go up and chat with anyone. And what I found is lawyers are not really good at that. So people are happy to have someone start a conversation or I was, you know, one of the few people not just standing around, you know, wondering, oh, I don't know anyone. I would just, hey, who are you? I'm David. This is what I'm doing here. I don't know anybody. So I meet a lot of people. And second, I'm a down to earth guy. I have kind of elite educational credentials, but I'm really a pretty simple, basic guy. So I kind of put people at ease. And finally, I'm good at explaining things. I'm a trial lawyer. I think it's in part because I'm good at explaining things. It's a good fit. But in terms of explaining things, the same abilities that I hope allow me to take complex concepts and present them to juries make me good at explaining to clients and potential clients you know, what I do, what I think their needs are. And so frequently I find someone I've met and frequently they'll say to me, well, what about this issue? Or, you know, I have, we've been struggling with this. And I'll say, oh, well, here's what I think, you know. And I try and make it pretty simple. And then over time, it's, sometimes it's a few days later, sometimes it's a few years later. They'll call you up and say, hey, I wanted to talk to you about X. Or I remember you were chatting about this thing. And I wanted to get your thoughts on this. We're seeing a trend here where a lot of our guests, especially litigators, uh, folks that are in trial, we hear this, that they're down to earth, that they try to be welcoming in who they are. So when you think about a lawyer coming up, is there any advice that you give them about being more down to earth, appearing more receptive to having conversations with potential clients? I mean, how do you break down those walls? When we think of a lawyer, what is the first thing people want to say about a lawyer? Oh, she's really smart. Problem is that in this economy and given the technology shifts we've seen, my view is smart is a really overrated quality that there are a lot of smart lawyers out there. There's more smart lawyers than there are good legal work to be done. So what the really valued thing is, is trust and comfort. People are prepared to accept, particularly you've got great educational credentials. Maybe you're a partner in a firm. They're prepared to accept that you're smart, but they want to know that they trust you. They want to feel comfortable talking to you. They don't want to feel stupid when they call you with what they think is a, a, you know, maybe a dumb question. People are very intimidated by lawyers. 
so my view is, yeah, it's sort of the keep it simple, stupid, and just be a good person. And the rest will kind of follow. Terrific. Leads into our next question. Of course, you work for a big firm and they're curious, I'm sure, on our at least a yearly basis, asking you about your plans for the next year and, and what kind of business you're bringing in or expect to bring in, which is different in your space, right? Of course, because it's I'm sure some of your cases are quite long and some of your clients have some regular need for your services. You know, Do you have a strategy that you are able to employ that allows you to somewhat predict the business that's going to come in an upcoming year? Or is there some formula that says, you know, if I have 17 accounts, it's an example that I am talking to regularly, there's likely to be a certain amount of business from, you know, 10 of those 17. Is there some strategy that you employ to ensure that you're developing business on a regular pace? There is. It's not one particularly tied to anything the firm asks over the course of my career, I've actually been at different firms as my practice has grown and evolved. But what I find is if I want to have a practice, if I want to represent clients, then I have to go out and ask people to hire me. So essentially what I do is I think the keys are you got to have a goal, you got to have a plan, and you got to execute against the plan. So every year I set goals. And frankly, not to sound too compulsive, but since my wife and I were first married, we have set goals for ourselves and our family in our personal lives. And that was in part because we read some report that said people who write down their goals are no more likely to accomplish those goals than people who don't write them down, but they're more likely to be successful. So we've written down our goals. So I do that. I have a goal. I write it down. Then I make a plan for that goal. And then I hold myself accountable for the actions I take sort of to achieve the goals. In addition, you know, writing them down sort of makes you accountable. But I also then, I enlist allies. I tell people, here are my goals for the year. Uh, Here's what I'm trying to do. Sometimes I'm asking them to help. Sometimes I'm just sort of reporting to them so that they're also saying to me, hey, did you go to this? Did you go to that? The other thing about writing down your goals is it tells you what you shouldn't be doing. And there's too many lawyers who go to these events, uh, professional association events, they meet a bunch of lawyers, they get a bunch of business cards, and they think they're doing marketing. But they're not. They're just socializing. They're networking. But unless you have a plan to convert those contacts into work, you're not really marketing. So I think business development is a task and it's something you have to approach like I have you know, a plan for litigating a case. I absolutely agree. And we talk about that extensively on Left Foot, especially networking, networking with other lawyers, which makes sense when you're in practices that rely on referrals. But it does require follow-up. You have to stay in touch with those folks. And it, frankly, for a lot of people, that's one of the more uncomfortable things is labeling something networking. We hear a lot that it's not the initial meeting that, you know, where this quote unquote networking magic takes place. It is during the follow-up, during the second time you meet someone, when there is a case or there is a referral and it's someone you might recognize that you actually might've met in the past. Let's go back to the goal setting because we talk a lot about tactical best practices. Do you have the one goal for a year and you break it down into monthly goals or do you have the one goal and you review it every day and you come up with a goal for the day that will get you closer to that goal? How do you execute on those goals? You know, I wish I could do it every day, but the truth is I'm one of the most disorganized people I've ever met. So I sort of keep my goals at a higher level. My goals are usually pretty simple and they're usually monetary. I'm going to try and generate this much work, this much new work this year. And then I look at the various channels I have for generating work. And then I 
define my goals for those. I'm going to go to this event. I'm going to do this many articles. I'm going to, you know, do this many webinars. There's certain people I really should follow up with and keep in touch saying, you know, I better get out there and go visit that person. And so I just list those tasks. I don't know where work will come from. I'm a litigator and I'm, most of my cases involve some kind of allegation of civil or criminal fraud. And that means I don't get a lot of repeat business. So I don't know when someone is going to be under investigation or sued. And when they do it, they're not likely to do it again. All I can really do is be out there and network and evergreen my relationships so that when something comes in, people say, oh, you know, David Douglas, and they call me that way. So it is just a matter of sort of being out there. And I should add on this networking, I think what people struggle with is what do you say? What's the follow-up? And I try and, you know, dispense information. Maybe you've seen this article or, hey, I remember you were saying this, but I saw this really interesting case on that point or this other law firm, I read their paper on this. You might want to take a look at that. Just something, you know, that was part of the basis of whatever relationship we have. Sometimes it's personal, funny stories, but it's, hey, Uh, you know, hey, you might want to see this. And then, of course, I have LinkedIn and all those other things where people can sort of follow what I'm doing or use that resource. I do a lot of probably do my fair amount of, hey, I was reading this article and I thought you might be interested in it. Here and there, I'll do some of that. And sometimes I think I'm not making an impact on that person or they're basically just not opening it. And then a year will go by and they'll say, oh, you sent me that article and it really resonated for me or run into someone at a conference and they really do remember who you are because of that. I think a lot of those have impact. To your point, your specialty is focused. It's not going to be something someone needs over and over. So people have to have an awareness of your work. Do you get most of your referrals from inside the firm or is it from other lawyers in other firms that are saying, hey, that's not our specialty? Or maybe it's other advisors, other trusted advisors that are working with clients that direct business to you. Where does the majority of that come from? In the big picture, it's probably roughly split 50-50 internal referrals, partners who call me and say, hey, we have a client, this has come up. And 50% I generate myself. For the stuff I generate, I consider work that I import to the firm versus when someone else calls me and I'm doing work and I'm exporting work. But for stuff I import to the firm, most of that actually comes either from other law firms or sometimes industry consultants. They'll have a client, they're doing some work, they realize that client may have a legal issue and a problem, so they'll call me. And some come directly from in-house counsel or corporate clients who I've met, I've known. So it's, I think that because I have a specialized area, probably the bulk tends to be from other law firms, followed by direct company contacts. And then the sort of third is this category of sort of consultants who work in this space. And now a word from our sponsor, Nicole here, and a shout out and thank you for tuning in to the Left Foot Podcast. Are you looking to energize your business development efforts? Our 12 Left Foot Business Development Challenges will energize your efforts in three areas. Business Development Grit, tactical habits that lead to business development success, including networking, nailing your niche, how to focus and develop an expert reputation, commercial savoir-faire, a discussion on business and the revenue side of law. At Left Foot, we believe 20% of people are natural at business development, 10% say no to business development, and 70% are neutral and can adopt the skills necessary when presented in an organized, methodical way. To learn more and be challenged, go to the GPS page at leftfoot.com. 
Can you share a success story with our listeners about either a case that you worked on that you were surprised how it found its way to your office or possibly a case that, you know, just was one that you say, wow, you know, that really turned into a significant piece of business for you and your firm? Yes. So there was one where came in through a consultant and because it was a highly confidential and sensitive matter, it was a lot of cloak and dagger about how it came about. I actually didn't know the client until I'd been interviewed several times. And then they finally called. And then, of course, we had to do a conflicts check. But that was really one that was a combination of having established a reputation for someone who you know is not only experienced, but kind of reasonable in this field. And I have lots of contacts with government lawyers who I work with and against and defense lawyers and whistleblowers. So it was that I had a really good reputation for not just skill, but judgment that they sort of found their way to me. And then I was able to sort of, when I sort of had the final audition, if you will, that was really where I said, well, I think you have a pretty tough problem, but I think what we really need to focus on are some higher values here, not just the litigation investigation piece. But you've got these other complex dynamics that I see. And if we just focus on, you know, the pure legal, I'm not sure we're going to address your other issues. So we got to do them together. And so I would do it this way. And I think we need to focus on this to accomplish, to help you with this set of goals. And then we can address the litigation. And on the litigation, I would break it down this way. And I think I'd approach it that way. And so I tried to put it in a broader context of what I thought they were trying to accomplish and what their broader needs were rather than just... I'm in here. You need litigation. I can litigate this case for you. It's interesting. We hear this from our in-house counsel that we talked to is that they want an understanding of potential outcomes and that they feel that the outside counsel that comes in, not with an answer right to their problem, but with a view that can show them what options are available to them, that that builds a comfort level often for them saying, you know, should we settle? What would that look like? Should we go to court? What would that look like? What are the possibilities? They want a little bit of an understanding based on the experience of the lawyer they're hiring, what is likely to occur, right? And what the associated fees are or damages, you know, depending on what's going on. That tends to build a comfort level with clients. I'm hearing that in your success story. That is my number one passionate thing that drives me crazy about lawyers, that we sell uncertainty, that we sell risk, we sell complexity. Lawyers, you know, you say, oh, there's a motion, you know, should we file this motion? The lawyer will say, well, I think we have a good argument. Well, who wants a good argument? You, you want to win. And it just seems to me, I know the law, I know the facts. One real variable in my work was, was the judge. But once I've gotten a little sense of the judge, you know, they call balls and strikes. Once I know the strike zone, I can then make a reasonable forecast as to what the outcome should be. And I can tell the client, you know, I, I think we're likely to win this one. We should win because this is the law. These are the facts. And this is what the judge has generally done. Sometimes I can say, you know, the problem we have here is this, but I can give them an assessment and I take pride in it. I think I'm more willing to tell a client how I think things are likely to come out than many other lawyers. And I just don't understand why would you hire someone to do a job who can't tell you whether they're likely to be able to do the job? I remember once I had this long discussion with a plumber who came to fix our toilet years ago. But one thing I came away from the discussion is right. When you have a clogged toilet, you have a problem. And a plumber comes and says, I'm going to charge you about this much. But when you're done, you won't have a clogged toilet. He doesn't say, I'm going to charge you this much. I can't really tell you how it's going to come out. I think I have a reasonable shot at unclogging your toilet. But regardless, you're going to pay me anyway. 
So I just think I owe it to my clients to give them my best assessment of my ability to achieve their objectives. Now, the flip side is what lawyers are concerned about is the client comes back and said, hey, you promised me a result. All right, that is a risk, but most of my clients are sophisticated. I try and explain it honestly, and when it doesn't go my way, when I have to call and say, well, that took a left. I tell them it took a left turn. And if I didn't make the right call, if I said, you know, I thought this was gonna, here was my assumption going in, I guess that was wrong. So sorry about that, here's what I plan to do about it. Most of them understand, but the truth is, if I really get it wrong, if I just screw it up, they, I probably deserve to be fired. So I like to practice better when I can say to work with a client in partnership, say, here's what I think we've got. Here's what I think we can do. Here's how we have to do it. Here are the likely outcomes. And as we get closer, I can give you a better sense. And if it goes this way, we'll do X. If it goes that way, we'll do Y. I, I just try to focus on outcomes because I think that's what clients are entitled to. A few different things, right? Communication, partnering with your clients, talking to them about what is likely to occur based on what you, you know, what you believe. And then of course, if it does change, still having a conversation with them about, Hey, you know, it didn't go our way. These are the reasons why that's huge. And we hear a lot that that communication is not taking place, especially around fees. And that's really the next, you know, kind of the next part of our discussion is, okay, the market's changed. It's very competitive out there. All size organizations are looking at their legal budget, at legal fees, and of course, in litigation and some of the practices where they said, oh, there's no way we'll ever be able to do any kind of fixed fees or fee estimates. Going back to your plumber story, I mean, that's the thing, right? So the plumber, we've always heard, you know, it's the service professional who comes into your home. It's a fee, you know, an hourly fee. Same thing, of course, in this profession, right, where we've always looked at fees as being you know, time, time and fees. Any thoughts on kind of how the market's changed, how that's affected the way that you approach working with clients? You know, has it affected your approach? Have you done anything differently in the last, say, five to 10 years that probably you didn't think you would ever be doing in your practice related to fees? Well, you know, it's interesting. I'll go way back. When I first came out of government to go back to private practice, I called a friend who had also been with the government and gone into private practice and said, well, what tips do you have for me? Because I had just spent a couple of years as a junior associate of firms, so I didn't really have a sense of firms at a, at a more senior level. And she said, well, you're going to have to learn to be less efficient. And I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and I realized when you're working for the government and you don't have enough, you figure out how to get things done efficiently. But the truth is when you're paid by the hour, you work less efficiently. I'm sure I'm not supposed to say that, but that just is the truth. And for me, I'd rather work efficiently. So the change that has happened, and I just, I welcome it, is much more sort of budgeting, making us think upfront, well, what is it going to take us to get this job done? And then just work to that. And in fact, I'll make an offer to your listeners. Any in-house counsel wants to call me up on a fixed fee arrangement, I'll take it and we can negotiate it. But I generally think when I get a case in, I can assess, is this a five-lawyer case? Is this a 10-lawyer case? Is this a, I can make some ballparks. And so it's not going to be fixed fee. I mean, my cases go for years. So it's not like, here's a check and now go do your thing. But it could be a monthly. I, my view is I think it works better if the client and I can agree on what this will cost. And then just let me do my thing. And the truth is, if I'm a little, now to me, it seems fair. If I can get it done a little more efficiently, I should actually keep the excess. But the flip side is, if I go over, that's on me. And that ladder is kind of true, right? Because we budget. And 
you know, I generally have to assume because corporations, I hear what they're saying. The general counsel says, I have a budget and I can't go to the company and say, well, you know what? The legal, the law firms charged me more, so I need more. I get that. So if I'm over budget, I'm probably not going to get it unless I have a really good answer. And that frankly seems fair. I should be able to figure that out in most cases. But I would say the flip side, if it was truly a fixed monthly fee and I can get the job done more cheaply, I think I should sort of get the reward. And the one other point is, and I think this may be where the industry is going, because it's project management. Litigation is just a set of discrete tasks. And so we're going to you know, issue interrogatories. So that's a task. We can make, take us, who cares how many hours it takes us to draft them? We're going to issue interrogatories. That's a task. We could be paid for that. But more importantly, that's the project management. Those are the metrics so that your client knows whether the project's on track or off track. Did you get the interrogatories out on time? Did you get the responses back? Do they change your view of the case? You've taken the deposition. Now you have that information. Are we on track or off track of our goal? That's how I run my cases, whether I have that discussion. So apart from the budgeting, I guess I would say, that's what I talk about with my clients. This is where I think this case will go. This is the range of outcomes. And now the discussion we have monthly or whenever is, are we on track or off track? And I think as the lawyer, it should be my job to manage the litigation, including the cost of it. Great points. And that whole idea of having that communication, even the litigators we've talked to who are using some kind of more fixed arrangement, it's not a a price for the whole situation. It is to your point, it's like a fixed fee for a month or a period. They're having communication with those clients so that when things come up that were not expected, it's discussed. And we are hearing more frequently that if the lawyers are more efficient and they're using technology and they're using outside firms to reduce costs of things that can be done effectively by other vendors, other legal service offerings or providers, that they're doing that, that the clients are like, hey, terrific, keep the extra because you're being efficient with that. Lends to this next question, which has to do with Yes, you know, strong project management, possibly project management tools, using legal services providers, really looking at technology and what technology can do to make you more efficient. In your world, in your work, what are you seeing that's innovative? Are any of those technology things really making a difference? I think what's innovative, we're not seeing it a lot yet, but I do think project management tools are going to be transformative. I actually use on my own, most because I have a lot of different cases of various levels of complexity with different teams. So I actually have my own project management software. It's just a, you know something I purchased that I don't roll out to my teams, but I think it's coming so that I can track where everybody is and so I can sequence the work efficiently. But the next evolution of that or the next use of that should be in the forecasting, cost forecasting part of the work. Because once all cases run the same set of traps, quite frankly, right? We have the rules of civil procedure or the rules of criminal. So we know all the things that have to get done from the time a complaint is filed to the time of final disposition. So that's just a project management task. And I think ultimately where the industry will go is getting away from hours much more to a a task-based management approach and a profitability analysis. But I think in the main Big law certainly does not have the project management tools it needs to accomplish that, but I think it's going to come quickly. And then I think what those project management tools will enable is you and the client will share those things. So the client should be able to look at my dashboard and say, who's doing what? What's the timing? And then they can say, I don't think we need this now. Let's push that to next quarter. And so that's, I think, going to be an exciting development as we move toward it. Do you have a comment on value? 
entering time and doing hourly bill rates versus fixed fees. You can really set your fixed fees, whether monthly on a particular matter. They're basically aligning a value to the resolution of whatever the item is. Is that something you think about? You know, it's hard in my world because we're just limiting exposure. And so it's sometimes hard to figure out what the, to have a value-based compensation arrangement. But I do think there are benchmarks. You can handicap a case and figure out, well, it should be this, or it could be this, or it could be this. And if we, you know, for each of those, maybe we get a different kind of bonus to incentivize us to sort of get it done quickly. But often in my world, quicker means a higher settlement because it's usually lots of factual development to really get down to the kind of evidence of what happened. So I haven't yet tested this hypothesis, but I think in my world, cases that settle sooner tend to settle higher relative to the demand than cases that are litigated longer. So quicker is not always cheaper, but it's also true that oftentimes the potential damages in the cases I'm working on are 10 times what you would spend in fees. And the other thing I've long thought of, and no one's taken me up on it, I think it would make sense to do a case like litigation on a flat fee each month. We know what the expensive phases, less expensive phases of litigation are. So you draw a line through and the average is X and you get that. But at the end, I think there should be a closing fee, I call it, because that does a couple of things. For companies, they want to align their spend with the case. So at the time you're settling a case, you're having to ask for approval to issue a check anyway. So then you just tack on the closing fee for the lawyer. So that helps even out and would help a company project, we're going to pay this much a month. And then at the end, whatever the final resolution is, you know, add X percent uh, for the closing fee. And what that closing fee also does is it gives the lawyer an incentive to get it done because then they want that bonus. At that point, the client can always control whether the settlement is a good one. So it gives the lawyer incentive to get to the best settlement fastest, but it allows the client to have control to say, nope, that's not a good settlement to offset any concern that the lawyer's putting their interest in that fee ahead of the clients. And the last reality is, you know, the lawyer's worst day, the client's best day is the lawyer's worst day. Client's best day is when the case is gone. That's the lawyer's worst day because then they got to go find another client. So I have this notion of, I got a little bonus, right? I can say to my partners, well, you know, I don't have another case, but we got this little bonus. I'm good for the next few months. I'm overstating that. But, But it is sort of this notion the end of a case should be a good day for everybody. So interesting because so many other businesses, especially with effective project management, right? They have milestones and payments are tied to milestones. And at the end is usually, you know, a pretty significant, if not, you know, it depends on your ramp up costs, right? And you want to pay for the resources you're using along the way, but that makes a lot of sense. I bet you we'll be seeing more of that with more effective project management. That's where I hope my practice will be in three to five years that I can get to the point where I said, if you, I'd prefer to do it this way. I propose to take this. I'll take some risk. You're going to take some risk. But you know what? It'll be a better cash flow management. We're going to approach this. You shouldn't spend. I don't know why if I was in-house counsel, I want to spend a lot of time looking at my outside lawyer's bills. Why don't you just tell me, did you get done what you said you were going to get done for the amount you said you'd get it done? And are we on track or off track? Then let's spend the rest of our time doing the fun stuff, thinking about legal issues and the strategy and how we're going to do devious things to the other side. (laughs) And protect our company. Sure. Right. I don't like reviewing my bills any more than my clients like reviewing my bills. So I see project management as a way to sort of have an alternate model, at least an alternate fee model for managing that process. So advice, you've had a successful practice. You've really focused in a particular area that I'm assuming you found somewhere early in your career that this was an area where you wanted to practice 
and spend you know your career practicing in. What advice would you have for those partners that are just starting out that are saying, okay, it's time to develop a book of business to get clients? You know, what advice would you have for them? Advice I have is to focus on who you are as a lawyer and the kind of practice you want to have and let everything flow from there. It's tough when you're in a firm and in the bubble and people worry about hours and compensation and the future. It can really distract you from the things that caused you to want to be a lawyer and the things that make practicing law fun. And I kind of think if you enjoy what you're doing, you'll do well at it and success, including financial success, will follow. But if you're doing it to get to a certain income level or to maintain a certain income level, then I think you're likely to be unhappy. And I think that's a lot of the unhappiness we've seen in the profession because people sort of have lost sight of what makes it worth doing and what makes the really significant sacrifices worthwhile. And for me, you know, I haven't spent all my time in private. I was in the government for a while, then I was in private practice. I took some leaves. I did got some projects for the government. I actually am doing something now, just not within sort of my formal practice, but we're the monitors for the consent decree that calls for the reform of the New Orleans Police Department. I'm a former civil rights prosecutor delivering constitutional guarantees to the residents of New Orleans. How cool is that? And so I've had fun in my career, right? And I've kind of assumed that the rest will work itself out, but it's because I never got ahead of myself financially. I think the financial pressures on the industry today really can undermine a lawyer's, his or her enjoyment of what they do and the success they achieve at it. So you have obviously younger partners, you have associates that you're working with. Are you able to give that advice in a way that resonates? I'm not a person who thinks that the best way to become a partner at a law firm is to like slog it out up the chain and then become a partner. And I certainly don't think that should be your motivation. You know, it's funny when I do on-campus interviewing and I say to a law student, so where do you want to be in 10 years? If they say a partner at your firm, I'm like, okay, you're done. Because that's not a thing. It's just a status. It's not to be a partner firm. And regardless of what you're doing or who you're doing it with, I think every lawyer has got to really see themselves as a solo practitioner. They have to take care of the finances, right? You got to make sure your financial house is in order. You've got to invest in your practice and the development. And you have to do all the things that you would do if you were running your own practice. And if you have solid foundations, then over time, it gets more and more rewarding. There's no question the earlier years are demanding and can be all-consuming. But if there's a passion you have, whether it's a sort of pro bono civic commitment or it's a recreational thing, build that in and build your practice around that. So ultimately, you've got a well-rounded life. Maybe you're not making the most money, but maybe you are. But just we're really privileged as lawyers, a little cynical to say, but we're one of the few largely unregulated professions out there. We're really the only profession that has a deep ingrained pro bono commitment. You know, we're really charged with doing good. That's a really privileged position to be in. And so if you're not enjoying that, you're doing something wrong. David, we so appreciate you sharing your thoughts with our listeners. Any last points you'd like to share before we say goodbye? You know, I think for all the challenges in the profession, it's also a really exciting time in the profession. I think it's the most exciting time I've been in. So I think it's a great time to be in private practice. And so I encourage people, I'm not one of, maybe you can tell, I'm not one of those cynical sort of, oh, don't do this kind of people. I'm like, oh no, absolutely. Come on in. The water's fine. I think if you enjoy what you do, make sure that you are constantly working on intellectually challenging and engaging tasks, right? That's why you became a lawyer. Make sure you're working with people you like and respect. 
and make sure you maintain a reasonable work-life balance. If those things are true for you every day, you will have a great career. Terrific last point. David, thank you. It's been a pleasure having you as a guest on Left Foot. It's really been my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Left Foot. For information on our podcast, our 12-session business development challenge, and our online business development coursework, visit leftfoot.com. It takes focus and thought to lead with the left foot. Until next time. Thank you.